Peter Gold was a fourth-year medical student at Tulane University in New Orleans. Good Samaritan Peter Gold stopped a kidnapping on Magazine Street and then ended up being shot in the process. The Tulane medical student was left for dead. Well, medical student Peter Gold stepped in, but he was shot in the stomach. He said, forget it, uh, I'm just going to kill you. And he took his gun out and at point blank. Tried to fire again, but the weapon jammed. The real story is that there was a young man who had lived a life in which he felt that he had to act so violently in order to get whatever he wanted. Hey, this is Grand Exit, conversations starting conversations about living, dying, and living on. We're sharing real talk on the life-death legacy continuum now, so we don't wait to the end to talk about what matters most. Enter here if you intend to be remembered. So, Peter, talk to us about what happened on November 20th, 2015. I like to say that I was at the wrong place at the right time. I saw a woman being abducted outside of a bar in the streets of New Orleans. My instincts took the best of me, and I got out of the car and stopped this guy from attacking her and trying to kidnap her. In the midst of doing that, he started to rob me and then held a gun at me and told me he was going to kill me. Shot me in the stomach and then tried to shoot me in the head a couple times, but luckily his gun jammed, and then he got in his car and, and drove off. In this episode, we're in conversation with Dr. Peter Gold, who found himself in the middle of a national news story in the fall of 2015 when he was shot on the street in New Orleans while intervening in an attempted assault. It was all caught on security camera. Peter, now an orthopedic surgeon and my husband, joins us here to tell the story of how close encounters with death inspired his upgraded approach to living his life. You can expect to hear how Peter's second near-death experience on the front of a rocket ship gave him a gift he carries every day, why legacy after living doesn't much interest him, and much, much more in a heartfelt conversation among friends. Let's dive in. This close encounter with death wasn't just a news headline. It represents a profound crossroads in your life. How did you show up differently on the other side of it? You know, everything that went through my head was all about Peter, and I'm going to be the best surgeon, and I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to do that thing. And the whole world really revolved around me after this event, and also being lucky to be in proximity to some really good people and really close friends who also helped me kind of break out of that singular mindset. But really in this event, putting myself in somebody else's shoes and uh, it really just kind of cracked my mind open and realized that there are millions and billions of stories out there of each individual person uh, and who are we to think that ours is any more special or better than anyone else's story. I can do everything that I can in my life to make my story as special as I hope to make it, but it's equal and parallel, and I guess sometimes crisscrossing to everyone else's story that's out there as well.
Let's fast forward to the spring of 2019. At the side of your gunshot wound, you have a pseudoaneurysm, which causes you to essentially bleed out and have yet another near-death experience. The medical professionals are, are working on you, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to save your life. Tell us what your inner state was. I was uh, sitting on an ICU toilet bowl with a nurse that they called Big John uh, holding me. In the inner world, I was nowhere near that. It felt like I was on the, the edge of a, of a rocket ship, you know, being launched basically to the moon. You know, it was extremely painful at first. I mean, you can imagine being, being strapped to the front of a rocket ship and being pummeled uh, into a beam of light would be quite painful. At some point, I kind of just realized that there was no fighting where this rocket ship was taking me and the resistance that I was kept trying to pull, put on and kept causing me more pain was not going to work. And so, you know, I completely surrendered to where I was going. And the second I did that, you know, that was probably the greatest feeling of euphoria I probably have ever felt and the most clear and calm and slow anything in my life has, has ever felt like. And everything just kind of slowed down and there really wasn't any choices. There was nothing else to think about. There was nothing else to do. It was just one singular beautiful moment that I was moving into. And then I started seeing people that I knew, my parents, my sister, best friends. Then I started seeing people that I didn't know, but I knew at some point I would know. And then everybody started yelling at me, uh, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be going down there. What, what's going on? Don't go, don't go. And I turned my head around and uh, everybody reached their hand out and one big hand reached out and grabbed me and threw me back out. And and I woke back up. What do you think the resistance was in the beginning? I mean, at first it was just pure fear. I mean, you're, you literally felt like I was strapped on the front of a rocket ship. And so, you know, it was just fear of going away and going away mm -hmm. at such a high speed and wanting to get back to to my life, wanting to get back to where I was before. And so I think the resistance was the fear of, of I don't know where I'm going and I wanna go back to where I was before this moment. Are there times now in your life where you have this fear about I wanna stay where I am, I don't wanna go forward, and that you need to sort of recalibrate a little bit and call back to the expansive experience of the rocket ship once you let it take you off into that light? I think the way it's affected me the most is less about fear of moving forward and more about remembering what it was like to surrender and remembering mm -hmm. what it was like to have full acceptance of this is where you are going like whether you want to go here or not like this is not your choice if you can just give up the idea that you have a choice in this situation and you stop fighting that then that is where pure ecstasy uh, lies and that's where calmness and clarity and beauty lives it's an impossible state to recreate in normal day-to-day. -day. You could try over and over and over again. It's a good reminder, 
but it, it, it's a possible state to recreate where you literally don't have a choice of what is happening and you completely can accept it. Tamitha, does that bring anything up for you? Yeah, I think what resonated most is this idea that it's not something you can recreate in daily life. Knowing that I'm metastatic and knowing the likelihood that I'll die of cancer, it's still hard for me to surrender, but there are times when I can get there, um, but it's a real practice. I, I was listening to the radio on the way here and this song came on by Jimmy Buffett, Don't Judge Me, <laughs> called Breathe In, Breathe Out, Move On. In the song, he talks about buying a watch that had no numbers on it. It just said now. And I thought, oh my gosh, that would be the greatest tattoo ever. Peter, have you ever heard of Dr. Eben Alexander? Mm -mm. I mean, I know not all doctors know all doctors. What do you mean? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> For like 25 years, he was an academic neurosurgeon. And so being a neurosurgeon, of course, he like many of his patients talked to him about near-death experiences. And he believed that they felt real to those who experienced them, but the way that it was explained by him is that the brain was really producing an authentic feeling of fantasy, but it was a stress response. So in this twist of fate, he catches this rare illness. It leaves him in a coma for six days. The seventh day he wakes up, he comes out of this coma and everything about his life has changed. So he has these memories of this fantastic odyssey deep into another realm, like your rocket ship. He also had this profoundly strong sense of there being a God and described life and death as not the beginning or the end, but they're parts of this greater existence as a soul. Like, I mean, this guy came out of his coma completely changed. So I'm wondering, was there a profound change in belief for you after all of this? And if so, what was it? It's funny that you quote a neurosurgeon. I actually had a conversation with Dr. James Doty, he wrote this book called Into the Magic Shop. He had a very similar near-death experience and typical neurosurgeon fashion. He was like, well, you know, I don't really want to put down your experience, but, you know, it's very clear that when you die, the first thing to go is your optic cortex and uh, that the light behind your eyes are going to burn. And that's why you see a bright light. And the most fondest memories that you have of family and friends, which fills your memories, that's what you're going to see. And he broke the whole entire thing <sighs> down to wow. just complete science and, and you know, non-mystical <laughs> at all. So, you know, I think I find myself in, in the middle of that, of that hmm. spectrum. For me, I think the most important thing that I pulled from it and I, I like to share with others is that, that there's nothing to be scared about. It's the most beautiful, euphoric ecstasy feeling in, in the world. And so for me, it just makes me more comfortable with the fact that whenever it happens for us, it, it's a beautiful experience and it's a beautiful connection um, that we all will, will have together. The second part of that experience that's had a pretty profound change in the way I think about death is I'm much more comfortable with it. Not, not only for myself, but for others. You know, I've had 
two very significant near-death experiences. I really shouldn't be here. The only explanation I have for that is that it's not our choice when you pass. We have our own journey that we're all parallel to each other, but each one of ours is ours. And how that ends is really not up to us. And so I feel much more comfortable when I see or hear about other people dying. And in a way, it kind of makes me happy because I know that they fulfilled their story and, and that really was their time. And on their way there, it was a, a beautiful ecstasy. I'm happy that, that they were able to fully experience that and finish their, their story. We've had this conversation a couple of times and every time you talk about sort of the serene journey and this beautiful, peaceful journey into death, the assuredness with which you communicate that it's all going to be okay, it does make me feel less afraid. And I, I hope others feel that too. It opened up a lot of conversations for us about dying. It was the same year Grandy died. I was really surprised how emotional he was at Grandy's funeral. Pete, you really do live with a lot of acceptance of what is. His version of faith is that, and or my experience of his version of faith is that. And it can still exist with sadness and grief for someone not being here to share this part on this side. Because if he took the rocket ship to the end, it makes, brings me great comfort to know that he wouldn't be in pain and I can extrapolate that others won't be either. I believe him. I subscribe to that. But it's still painful for those who are left behind or don't get to be on the same side of the people that they feel unfinished with. There's two different things, right? One is, are you upset and crying and feeling emotional because of how you feel that that person's death was a tragedy or that person's death was something negative that wasn't supposed to happen and how could this happen and I'm so upset that she's gone and that that's one reason to be emotional that's not the reason why I, I get emotional around those kind of things the things that make me emotional is you know the moments when we're standing at a funeral like Grandy's funeral and and I start thinking about how is that going to affect you how is that going mm. to affect your mom how is that going to affect your sibling the other people that Grandy had such a profound impact on their life and realizing those ripples, that's upsetting, right? That's emotional and that's where even in the setting of accepting death, you still need to grieve. It's easy to sit here and say, oh yeah, I was almost there, I saw it. Hey guys, it's, it's fine, nobody worry, nobody freak out. <laughs> When it's your time, you're going to like it, I promise. <laughs> but you can have that and also still grieve, you know, the connection that you won't be able to have, you know, while you're here. Both sides of the coin can be true. Tamitha, to be honest, I, you know, you've known Chelsea for a really long time and we've spoken a lot. And I mean, I don't think you and I have ever talked about your disease and how you feel about it. So even in my confidence of all this you know i for me it's definitely a a subject between you and i which you know sitting here now makes me nervous to to broach and makes me nervous to to discuss mm -hmm. so 
I don't, one thing you said earlier made me think of like, okay, if you're going to ask her a question, this is the time. So, <laughs> you know, what, what are you most afraid about? Well, I talk a lot to palliative care about the pain of it. I mean, I know that ca cancer gets painful. That's why people are on morphine and their family members, you know, sit around and press the morphine button when their loved one starts groaning. Mm. That's not what I want. Um, I really do want to go out on my own choice when I feel like it's my time and I live in a state that allows that to happen gratefully. I think what I am most afraid of is will Harper be okay? So it's, as you said, like it's the ripple effect of the death. For me, I'm pretty resolved. I've had a long time to consider how this will go, but it's the ripple effect for the people who I love most. You know, my parents aside um, and my brothers aside, that's John and Harper and, and mostly Harper. That's what I'm most fearful of is just sort of what her life will look like after I'm gone. How do you look at death as a doorway or portal to living life differently? You could use the analogy of the door walking through and closing it or being on the end of the rocket ship going to a certain place. The hard thing is is just always accepting that once you move to the next door, the door behind you is closed. And that doesn't mean that what was in the room before can't exist in the next room. The misconception is, well, something changed, so now everything's different. I think you can get carried away resisting and thinking about the past as, well, if I'm moving forward, I'm losing everything that's behind me. And it doesn't have to be like that. You can recreate exactly what you want to have had in the previous room or the previous situation that you were in. Recreate everything that still works for you and everything that you want to work with just the realization that the person who's recreating that is hopefully the better version of yourself, the newer version of yourself. Uh, and therefore, whatever you're recreating should be better than what was in the room before. And so I think if you have that like exponential, cumulative, positive mindset about everything, then there's no room that you're going to be in, which is going to be bad. It's all going to teach you what you want to have in the next room. And then that'll show you how you want the next room to be. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. The small part, like a not that evolved part of me has like this rebellious sense against good and bad in the way that Pete just explained that. But then when I think, oh, I have to say goodbye to the last room to say hello to the next, I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> and I also am quite resilient. I deal well with hard things, I think. It feels like that there's resistance and like a thought of, well, wait a second, I just worked so hard to make room a yeah. what room a is and now i'm in room b like what the heck like i don't want to work that hard again to make this room what it is and to me that feels like that resistance trying to fight the rocket ship that room is going to be what it's going to be and you're going to be better in that room so whatever was in the room before just 
bring that again you already learned all the tricks and tools and you already worked hard to to have the best things in that room so bring those things along with you and then whatever else gets filled in will get filled in and attachment is the exact opposite of surrender mm-hmm. and my happiest moments are moments of surrender but my most <laughs> probably one of my more frequently visited feelings is attachment so yeah i think what you're saying makes a lot of sense you know, I got stuck for a while, especially right after I was diagnosed, that I was grieving the old Tamatha. I was grieving her death, not remembering that I was still bringing the most beautiful parts about her with me. Just as Peter said, that you can bring all that furniture along. This is when things started to settle in for me a little bit more about how I do this new normal of metastatic breast cancer, but that all of the strong things about Tamitha, all of the best things about her, as Peter said, like, you know, your best self still gets to come along. You just have to like figure out how she fits in this new room. Are there any downsides to this? I know in the breast cancer community, we sometimes get stuck only looking at the the hopeful parts. I'm wondering if there's a downside here. I don't really feel day to day all the time that I'm so grateful to be alive. Again, just because it just doesn't feel like something that's my choice or our choice. Like it's literally going to happen when it's going to happen. So it really has like its own separated timeline from my like living life. And I have no idea when, why, how. That's completely out of my control. So it kind of just gets its own its own category and doesn't really affect me being you know so thankful that I'm still here right now. I'm not anxious that I'm going to die. Like it's going to happen, and when it does, it does. You know, maybe some of the pitfalls of that is that you really kind of always have to be in motion if you are always getting better and always becoming the better version of yourself. Like it's an, a marathon of eternity, and that can take a lot up a lot of energy, and and it can mm-hmm. be really tiring. And so I think that's mm-hmm. kind of a downside. There's one principle or one concept that kind of helps to ground me in, in those struggles. And it, it's called the, the Stockdale Paradox. Jim Collins uh, wrote about it in his book, From Good to Great. And the Stockdale Paradox basically says that you should have blind faith that whatever is going to happen in the end is going to be great and it's going to be exactly what it needs to be. And you can do that as long as you are brutally honest with what is actually going on right now in your life. And that for me is the difference between optimism and hope and we're gonna find the next cure tomorrow. Mm. And when you do that, then that's the hamster wheel where you keep spinning and 10 more spins and you're gonna get it. And then 10 spins come and you don't get it. 10 more spins and then eventually, you know, optimism will run out over time if it doesn't get rewarded. So this other way of thinking is, you know, hey, whatever is going to happen at the end of this is exactly what's supposed to happen. And I have so much blind faith that that's going to happen. But if you're in a really bad situation right now, like you have metastatic breast cancer or you're brutally honest with exactly today, how are you feeling? And when you can get real with yourself on what today is actually like, then you can get honest with 
what do I need to do right now to be happy? That's really the product of the Stockdale paradox versus optimism and hope. Brutal honesty. It's the variety of hope that's working best in our house right now. Amen. When going through hard things, Pete reminds me of it often. And it, it's a great battle tool, honestly, like when, and when you're not, you don't need it usually when you're not like, you know, pushing against something hard or being in flow with something hard, relative to something hard, whatever it is. And it's been a huge transformation in mindset. I don't make myself, I don't pretend to be optimistic. I live with a lot of gratitude. I don't always live with a lot of optimism. And maybe it looks like I do, but I'm not pretending. It's just what looks like optimism for me is coping in whatever way shows up then. But Pete's reminders on this track have been huge for me. And we kind of dance back and forth on this because essentially my mantra is be with what is. Just for, I, I will need that reminder probably forever. Mm. And, but when I am with what is, I, tend, I have a lot of emotions. <laughs> This is episode eight of season one, so I think everybody <laughs> has picked up on that. And so sometimes when I am with what is, I it opens up the floodgates. I started crying mm. like two minutes into this episode. My nose has been running. I can't stop that mm. and think that I can walk into the next room better. I can't walk in better if I'm not present to all the parts of myself in our home, in our family, which right now is me and Pete, when we're constantly in motion and trying to get better, sometimes I'm not able to without Mm -hmm. being still to see what is, to then be with it. I wasn't his partner in his first near-death experience. I was a witness like the rest of the world. And I was in the room literally for the second one and it made me want to marry him. Mm. (laughs) The way that my mom was like, you do not get married in the hospital without us, please. (laughs) Um, But really like the way that he was grounded when he was back with us terrestrially in call it whatever you want, in surrender and serenity and peace and then in motivation, it was like very contagious. I had to emotionally follow it with like a full seven days of almost stillness. It's kind of interesting when Chelsea, you're saying that when you get into that Stockdale paradox and you get honest with yourself of like, okay, what's actually going on right now and let me be in it. That emotes you to being very emotional and super in touch with like, okay, I'm in this thing. I'm honest with myself what it is. And then you really deeply feel what that is. And I have the complete opposite reaction is like when I get into, okay, what being honest with myself, what is actually going on right now? being brutally honest, all emotions go away. And it's just complete honesty of like, this is it, accept it. And it, it does not make me feel any, any emotions at all. Tamitha, I wonder for you, you know, where do you fall in that spectrum, especially where you are right now when you're brutally honest? I mean, how do you, how do you react? I probably fall much more in line with Chelsea, that it's just all emotion all the time. It's funny because when I was first diagnosed, I got the call, hung up the phone. And I told John, I said, well, they're sure that it's inflammatory breast cancer. And he started crying. 
And I took him by the shoulders and I said, don't you fall apart on me right now. Don't you cry. And it was, of course, the worst thing I could have ever said to him. (laughs) But I was so used to the both of us, you know, after 20 some years of marriage, having our sort of the yin and the yang, right? Like when we're both being in a moment of brutal honesty about right now, what is happening? I open up, I crack wide open. And to see him also crack wide open just threw me into a tailspin. I couldn't figure out how we would both get out of it together in a solid place. I really feel deeply the importance of brutal honesty as opposed to hope and optimism. For me hearing that, it would make me think like, wait, no, the Stockdale paradox is not going to work for you then. Like if if getting real with yourself doesn't like allow you to then march forward, then like, and it, it makes you open up and become like very emotional. Like, does it still work? But what I can get, I can mean? get there. I can get there, but I have to crack open first. Uh, you know, when you hold a beach ball under the water in a pool <laughs> and it's, it's like hard to do and it wobbles around. And then all of a sudden, like it, it pops up and makes a huge splash. That is me. If you make me hold the beach ball under the water, it's just going to all sort of explode. Just let me feel it. And then I'll, then I'll be able to come back and, and be able to move forward. It, it's so funny because every single time I used to do that as a kid, my goal would <laughs> always be to sit on it and never let it come up again above yes. the water. Okay. That is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the, the analogy still still fits. At the end of the day, the ball will always float. Peter, I want to move us to this the the idea of legacy and the impact that you think these two near death experiences, the change that resulted in you what that might look like in terms of your legacy, how you live on. I struggle with like positive internal validation and like look for external validation. So legacy very much like pulls on that external validation, right? I'm going to, I'm going to pass away and people are going to write books about me and blah, 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 blah. But in the setting of this conversation and when I'm actually kind of real and like, and thinking about it, it's not really something that I think about and like care about on a, on a day to day. Like when I'm actually the most happy form of me and the most clear form, I don't really know what else is going on. Like time doesn't really exist. My mind, which is usually filled with 5 million things. Like the only thing that's on my mind is that one thing. It's rare when that happens. I wish it happened more often. I mean, when I'm doing surgery, that happens. When I'm in, you know, deep conversations with friends, with family, spending quality time with Chelsea, when I'm listening to music. And in those moments of life, who cares about legacy? And like, it's just, that's, to me, that's the most important thing is finding those moments of acceptance, finding those moments of where you can just surrender into being there and i i care more about doing that as much as i can rather than doing something else that then will create something when i'm gone
Amitha, you shared with me something I never thought about prior to us preparing to be in the room with Peter today. And that was that you feel that you live a near-death experience every day. And so I'm curious, after spending the time we've just spent in this conversation, what comes up for you around the concept of your near-death experience? And if anything that Pete shared has permeated the thinking that you held or the belief system you held prior to this conversation? Sometimes when I'm talking with people about death and dying, they'll say, well, I could die anytime too, you know, in response to me saying I'm living with metastatic cancer. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And my response in my head, I never say it out loud, <laughs> so now I will, is that, <laughs> yes, exactly, is that, yes, and I'm in the bus lane. <laughs> like, I'm standing in the bus lane. You're not standing on the bus lane. So that's what I mean by saying I live a near-death experience every day. I have poison running through my veins. I had chemo two days ago. No, was that yesterday? I had chemo yesterday. It's like I'm in this constant fight or flight mode just in terms of medically what's going on with me. Put aside psychologically and emotionally what's going on every day. So, Tamitha, I mean, for you, what does it feel like to be in the limelight with other people when it comes to having cancer? I mean, is it something that you feel constantly? How does it make you make you feel? It sort of starts to play with my head a little bit around what's it all mean? Is the cancer purposeful and therefore I'm supposed to do something with it? Am I rising to the challenge? Was it just dumb luck? I've been metastatic just over two years now. And, you know, my dear friend Laura died after three months of being metastatic. So what was the difference? I get sort of stuck. I was asked just today to be on a panel at a patient forum at Dana-Farber um, in April on the importance of clinical trials. Gosh, I feel proud. And if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, I'll do it. I'll shout from the rooftops. You know, I am here standing on the shoulders of women who went through hell testing drugs for me. But it does sort of mess with my head a little bit, honestly. Anytime I talk about it, I do have to be very clear that uh, I'm experiencing cancer from a place of great privilege. I, you know, I went to the doctor. I was believed that something was wrong. You know, I was immediately sent to a great physician. I was sent to one of the best cancer treatment centers in the world. I'm, I'm clear about that. I'm clear about that. I can totally, totally relate to that too. I mean, how many people in this country stop somebody from shooting somebody or how many, how many people get innocently shot in this country that, you know, aren't privileged and, you know, there's no headlines about them being a hero or, you know, them protecting their friend or brother or, mm. or aunt or I completely agree with you there. There's definitely a strange gift, but also realizing that it's not a not a gift that so many other people that go through similar things actually have. And I mean then, then that changes your whole perspective on it too. Okay, well then what do you do with it? You're on a soapbox talking about 
you know, what I learned and this and this and that, but it's like, that's not the same, not the same lesson. It's not the same experience. I don't know. That can make you jaded too, I guess. You know, the one interesting thing, I, I think, in terms of near-death experiences and people living with, with cancer is if you zoom out from a 30,000-foot view, people that haven't been through those things are so fascinated by them. They really want to get as close to it as possible. My analysis of that is that people realize that it is somewhat of a superpower. You know, you have these experiences which are so rich and full of emotion and life and it just it really makes you something that you could not have been if you didn't go through that and i think that there's something so special about that that people feel they want to be around and they want to learn more because they also know that the more that they learn about it and the more that we can share our stories about it the better it can make them too It's interesting because to see for the same reason that we couldn't not include Pete's first near-death experience, that was a profound milestone in Peter's life. That headline is key to understanding the next one. That is legacy too. It's living legacy and it's probably legacy post-mortem, right? Like we are the sum of our experiences and sometimes we don't want those to be part of the story, but they are who we are is inclusive of what we picked up along the way. And for me, I what I take from both of you, I, I didn't know you, Tamitha, before you had cancer, but I don't think of you as Tamitha who has cancer. Tamitha, I learn from you all the time, but I have to assume I would be learning from you before this disease to, played a big part in your life. And yet, I don't know. I don't know you. I didn't know you then. And so it's We should ask some people. <laughs> I think everyone Who was the better Tamitha? (laughs) But it's like whoever Tamitha was today was the better Tamitha because that's who Tamitha is. And I was so excited when we launched Grand Exit because I got to share you because Mm. you have made me more me. So I just Mm. was so excited when my friends could hear or even people I went to college with and haven't talked to in a really long time reached out not to say, oh, my gosh, I learned so much. First, they said, Oh my God, Tamitha. And I'm like, I know, right? But it's It's interesting because it gave you the soapbox. Our experiences hand us the mic and it takes a certain Mm. type for us to have the confidence to step up to it and know that we're extraordinary, even though everyone has the possibility within them to be extraordinary and own it and step up, but they don't always get the opportunity to realize it and then the opportunity to be handed it. And I think knowing that the experiences that brought you guys closer to yourselves today were ones that showed you how fragile life is and then allowed you to be really stronger than life's fragility in that moment is what makes you exceptional. And you were both that way inside of yourselves prior to these experiences, probably, highly likely, but you had the opportunity to experience that and show yourselves that. And then you both happened to be witnessed in that. And that's really special. 
I think what struck me most about this conversation today, and I wrote the words down, surrender, full acceptance, calmness, and clarity, that comes from the ride on the rocket ship. It just struck me more than it ever has before in talking with Pete about his near-death experiences, that I need to just try to hold on to those words a little more every day. Peaceful, serene, comfortable with it, Thank you for listening to Grand Exit. If you're enjoying exploring the life-death legacy continuum, come back to keep diving in with us here. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on Instagram. We're grand.exit. And sign up for our newsletter at grandexit.com slash newsletter. And most importantly, share. Please do share this by starting a conversation about life, death, and legacy with someone who matters to you. There's so much waiting for you there. Join us every other Thursday as we bring death to life for those who intend to be remembered. Catch you next time.